finding God in unexpected places. This is the Messy Spirituality Podcast. Here's Jason Elam. Hey, everyone. This is Jason. Before we get into the episode this week, I just wanted to invite you to join the Messy Conversations group on Facebook. You know, I've always wanted a place where we can all engage together with the ideas and topics raised on the podcast. So we've started Messy Conversations as a place for the Messy Spirituality podcast community to further engage with those topics, to engage in conversations about deconstruction, reconstruction, and everything in between. For the privacy and safety of everybody involved, it's a closed group. Healthy, respectful debate is, of course, encouraged, but any name-calling, finger-pointing, accusatory, or toxic conversation gets folks bounced from the group. Hopefully, that won't ever be an issue. We really just wanted a place where you could come and tell us what's on your mind as a result of the conversations that we have here on the Messy Spirituality Podcast. You can go to facebook.com slash groups slash messy conversations with an S, it's plural, Messy Conversations to join the conversation, and I hope to see you there. Eden Jersak is an author, speaker, and church planter. She's the mother of three men and Grammy to one sweet granddaughter. She enjoys traveling with her husband, adding her voice to the mix, and seeing God's hand in the day today. She is the co-author of the book, Rivers from Eden, 40 Days of Intimate Conversation with God, which we will link to in the show notes. She's been described as the living embodiment of Papa from the shack, and I am thrilled to welcome her to the Messy Spirituality Podcast today. Welcome, Eden Jersak. Thanks for having me, and that's a pretty big thing to line up or to live up to at this point. So here's hoping that I won't just totally fail everyone on that count. Oh, I'm certain that you won't. That description was given to me by somebody who should know you very well. So That's true. All right. So my first question to you today, if it's okay, can we start talking about your spiritual background? Were you raised in an atmosphere of faith? Yeah, absolutely. I grew up, uh, my dad was an immigrant from the Ukraine. He was part of a Mennonite community there that had moved decades and maybe centuries before. And he came out during the Second World War, came to Canada and brought his Mennonite faith with him. And so I grew up in a Mennonite church. Now, it's not like the skirt wearing, really conservative kind of, it was kind of like Baptist, but also non-violent kind of faith. How has your faith evolved over the years? Oh, <laughs> hugely. Growing up, I, I don't recall this actually being taught to me. I just know that it's what I experienced. If I had an image of what God looked like, it was uh, this great big man with, uh, with a clipboard. And he was constantly watching and writing little notes on, on a piece of paper on the clipboard. And so I was always aware of my shortcomings, my sin, my however, whatever you want to call it. And I was constantly in a state of needing to repair my relationship with God. It was a little, a little bit strange within the Mennonite context, but we did have people leading the children's portion of church who would very regularly, like weekly, ask kids if they wanted to become Christians. And even though I wouldn't go forward because, you know, even at the age of five, I knew, well, I've been in church all my life. I shouldn't need to do this again. I would ask Jesus into my heart every week, begging him to forgive me for my 
evil ways throughout the week. And so that, that was my image of God growing up until I was about 16 years old. And at that point, I was in a private school, a Christian private school, and we were having a spiritual emphasis week. And the speaker was talking about the Lord returning, which always put the fear of God in me in the most hellish way. They asked, or, or my friend turned to me and just said, can't you just wait for the Lord to return? And I just looked sideways at her and said, oh, I can wait. I can totally wait. Like, what if I've sinned when he comes back and I'm negated from, you know, the Lamb's book of life for my, for my sin? And she just looked at me and she said, but Jesus is death on the cross was for all time, sin, past, present, and future. You really don't have to worry about that. And it was the first time, it felt like the first time I had ever heard that. And at that point, I stopped looking back from my, in my Christian faith, I stopped always looking over my shoulder, looking to see what have I done? How am I out of sorts here? Instead, now I could look forward and I could see God's hand. I could see his face. I could see what he was up to. And and I felt more invited into the relationship than just um, that it was keeping score of how I was doing. Wow, that's beautiful. I'm so grateful for the gift of that conversation where she told you that about the uh, sacrifice of Jesus being for all time. That's an incredible breakthrough. It w- and it was just such a small moment in time, but it really made a huge difference. Were women an active part of the church growing up in the, your context? So, uh, yes and no. If active meant being in the kitchen and serving, uh, absolutely. If it meant getting a chance to be at the mic, no. But I have an amazing mom. She doesn't remember how amazing she is anymore. But she was the very first woman in our Mennonite church to take on the responsibility of being the Sunday school superintendent. (laughs) So now you know how old I am when I say superintendent (laughs) for a church context. But she stepped into this role Uh, She was invited into it, and she decided she would take it on. And she was magnificent at it. She was really, really good. She just brought a real breath of fresh air to, to what was happening with the kids. Consequently, every once in a while, she would have to go up and make an announcement and actually use the mic, (laughs) which... Is like, that was already a stretch, right? (laughs) I know within, you know, within my teen years, they opened up uh, scripture reading to people in the church and they allowed women to do that. I don't recall into my adulthood, any woman ever having this sermon. If they even spoke, like gave any sort of message, it was called a sermonette, just to be clear. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> to distinguish it from what the men were doing. Yes, they were giving sermons, but a woman, if she had anything to share at all, it would be considered a sermonette, which is just so strange. But anyways. What a ridiculous term. Yeah, yeah. Oh my goodness. Okay, so at what point did you first feel drawn towards ministry beyond the sermonette? You know, I would say, I, I think I came back from my first year of Bible school and I 
didn't know it, but I was already hearing God's voice quite clearly. I just thought it was a good idea. So I was probably 19, and I saw a group of girls on a church baseball team who were friends of my cousin, my younger cousin. They were all about 16, and and I thought, I wonder if they would consider like just meeting weekly to learn how to pray. So after the baseball game, I asked if they'd like to go for coffee, and we went, and I proposed this idea, and one of the girls started crying, and she's like, oh, I've been waiting for someone to offer something like this. And all the other girls jumped in. We spent the whole summer weekly taking the mystique out of prayer and recognizing that there is strength and something that actually there's an active ingredient in us talking to God about the things that are bothering us. In the end, I made lifelong relationships with those girls. And the thing that I was most concerned about was, oh, okay, now I'm going back to college and these girls are going to be on their own. And is this going to stick? And the most amazing thing for me was that I came back at Christmas and they had taken off like a rocket and they were teaching other girls how to pray and the youth group was really doing well and I thought oh it actually had nothing to do with me but just the desire to step in and take a role that didn't require a mic at that point but I recognized that they're following promptings or what however I would have termed it that good ideas at that point does have a valid direction to take to the next steps, which might include a mic, right? So when Brad youth pastored our first basically 10 years of our marriage, I was sometimes taken out for coffee to ask whether I would like to speak from the mic. And it always felt like a gotcha question because of the source. And I, and I kind of felt like, no, my answer needs to be definitely not just not to stir things up. And there was other, you know, rumblings within the church, like how come we don't have women? And probably around that time, there would have been the occasion where maybe someone with letters behind their name or a particular ministry that happened to be female was allowed to go up and speak from the mic. But I didn't take those opportunities at the time. Then Brad and I planted a church called Fresh Wind in 19... 98. And there was more opportunities given. I was like knee deep in kids and it it just wasn't something that I was drawn to until 2008 when I took leadership of the church. And at that point, of course, the mic was mine to use as I saw fit. I tried to share it as much as I possibly could though. Now, when we talked to Brad, he described that period as just a period of him absolutely being burned out and overwhelmed mm-hmm. with really just the circumstances. He mentioned several people had passed away in the church in, in a short span of time and basically just described being uh, fried yeah. uh, emotionally. What was it like for you to step in under those circumstances? Well, obviously difficult. He was very beloved by the church. He's a really amazing pastor. And and what he had brought to the church was just incredible. And so it was a huge loss to them to see him in this state, right? I had to do some real soul searching before I even 
said yes to playing this part. But I felt like God was asking me to do this. So the first sermon I shared, I talked about, you know, filling other people's shoes. And I said, you know, physically, if I walked around in Brad's shoes, I would look ridiculous. We're not the same size. We don't wear the same kind of shoes. And so as a leader as well, I've got to find my own pair of shoes. I'm going to do things differently than he did. It's it's going to look different and feel different. But, you know, will you just honor me and let me wear my own shoes? And this little church was just amazing. They absolutely willed me to succeed. That's so awesome. What a, what a gift. So as you stepped into that role in your own right, in your own shoes, did you feel your ministry gifts or things coming alive? Did you feel your voice being elevated? Yeah, I, I, I really did. I mean, I'll, I'll just back up to when they announced it. There was no lead up for the church. We announced that Brad was stepping down, and within 10 minutes, they were telling the church that I was taking on this new role. And so I was put in a chair in the middle of the room, and the men were called around me, and they were asked to pray over me. And the very first voice that spoke out said, Eden, where you lead, we will follow. And I... I just thought, wow, like this is amazing. And then all the other voices chimed in, all the men saying, just tell us what to do and we will help you. And then the women gathered around me and said basically the same thing. And I, the thought crossed my mind, like I don't know which one is actually the bigger mind blower for me right now, that the men are right behind me or that the women are, because it's not a given either way. But they were true to their word. The entire time. And so when I, when I spoke, they were engaged. And I don't, I don't think it was particularly what I was saying all the time. It was just their desire to engage with me and to be there for me. That sounds like a really unique and special church plant. It really was. <laughs> from what you're saying today, from what Brad has said in the past, it just sounds like such a unique church body such an, a unique church family. I really wish <laughs> that I that I could have seen that firsthand. Uh, it just sounds like such a wonderful, wonderful place. What did you enjoy most about pastoring that church? I think at the time, because we were down, Brad wasn't the only pastor who'd stepped down. There was another pastor who'd stepped down just a few months prior, also very beloved of the church. We were in a really painful place, And while we had heard a lot about the Father's heart and all that, I recognized that part of picking up and wearing my own shoes was that I'm not a father, I'm a mom, right? And so I decided to engage as a mom and not mothering, but nurturing, caring for, expressing my my feelings towards this group. So there was hardly any Sundays where if I had the mic, I didn't always have the mic on a Sunday morning, but if I had the mic, I would fully express my love to the congregation. I loved doing that. And I would have kids and grown men and old ladies yelling back to me, we love you. And I thought, where does this happen? 
Mm-hmm. I can't even imagine this happening in my home church, right? Or any other church where, where I'd been in the past. And so these, this ability for me to like think about how do I treat my kids? I want my kids to always know that I love them. And so I wanted my congregation to know I love you. And I would try to point out specific things that I had noticed that really brought me joy or was a a tender moment for me. And just so that they knew, like, I can see you. You matter. Like, even these little things, like putting your arm around someone who's come to church alone and they're hurting. And those kind of things, those are... Those are kind of, I don't want to use the word magic, but it's coming to mind. They're kind of magical within God's kingdom where we put ourselves aside for the sake of someone else. So being a part of that, spending time listening to people, caring for them, and then making a Sunday morning service where people could recalibrate from their week's life, where they're out in the world, they're at work, they're in school, they're rubbing shoulders with society. And we can easily lose track or just be off a degree or two from true north. And if we take too long to correct, it's quite a walk back. But if from week to week we can recalibrate and remember who God really is who he truly is and what his disposition is towards us, then it's just a little minor, hey, let's get back on track right now. And I loved being able to find different ways to do that for the folks at Fresh Wind. As wonderful as Fresh Wind was, no church is perfect. And I know any church that I found that I thought was perfect, I really screwed up by joining it. (laughs) Yes, that's what my mom used to say. (laughs) (laughs) What were the most challenging aspects of leading in that church for you? You know, we had a really diverse group. So we had rangy kids who stayed in the service throughout. And we tried to have things for them to do. But our intention was we wanted them to be part of the service and not just to be sent off somewhere else to color in a page. And so the families that were at our church with young kids valued that. But that also made it difficult for people who were past kids <laughs> and could easily be distracted. So that was that was one feature of a Sunday morning. And then we also had a lot of people that were either in recovery or still in their addiction or that that sort of sector. And they could come in clean and really happy or still high or hungover. And so trying to create a place for them within the Sunday morning where we could care for them, where we never wanted them to feel like if they weren't clean that they couldn't come on a Sunday morning. It might mean it took a little more effort on our behalf to kind of make sure that they, they weren't harmful or anything, but we really wanted to make sure that they always felt included. Then we also had the working poor, a lot of the working poor where, you know, they they had steady jobs, but, you know, they were only making do. And then we had people who 
were doing quite well and rubbing shoulders and being friends and being at each other's homes. And then we also had a, a large group, probably at least a third of our congregation that were in homes because they had uh, some form of disability, some very severe, some less so. And so some of them weren't even verbal. Some of them were comedians and, you know, would act up and all kinds of things. But one of those groups in a Sunday morning service would have been a challenge, but we had four of them going. Usually three, at least two or three of them were contributing somehow on a Sunday morning. And so that was, that was a challenge, but it wasn't a challenge like a dread or like, this is really horrible. It was kind of more like, how can we solve this puzzle this week? How can we make everybody feel like they belong when we're not focusing on them particularly this Sunday? So part of how we did that was we called these four groups, the the disabled, the children, the prodigals, which kind of was the, the addiction side of things, and then also the children. We called them our pillars. They weren't our focus. They were our pillars. And so what that meant for us was if we wanted to know on a Sunday morning what God was up to, we would look to the children, or we would look to our friends in wheelchairs, or we would look to someone who, you know, was down on their luck or in recovery. So we could, what we recognized was the pillars was what was holding or displaying what God was up to. And consistently, God was faithful to speak through them, including kids just coming up with a piece of paper that they had drawn to show you know, they'd walk right up to the mic, show the, this paper, and they would have this picture that we all needed to, to see and know what God was up to. I mean, there's a million stories, but there, it, it was just phenomenal, but a huge challenge for sure. That sounds like it would be very difficult to transition out of leadership at such a special place. What was that like for you? Totally true. Because I stayed at the church, for several years after that, it wasn't so hard to transition out. I knew that my time was up, that this is what God had given me and I needed to make space for the next person. What was hard for in within the Freshwind context was finding someone who could value our community the way it was. It's not like you can just put an ad in the local Christian paper saying, hey, we're looking for a pastor and we need these kind of attributes or characteristics because this was like a one-off here. <laughs> and so what ended up happening was the person who took over or the, the people who took over for me were from within the church just because to be able to value the people with disabilities and recognize that they don't have a junior Holy Spirit there is only one spirit and we all get the same potency of it. And we, we often were taught by them in one way or another. And we needed to have someone come in to lead that would continue to draw from them. In the book that you and Brad wrote together, Rivers from Eden, you describe a very rich personal relationship with Jesus. You describe in depth 
personal conversations with Jesus. You talk about special places that you can go where he told you something specific that was meaningful to you. Who is Jesus to you and what role does he play in your faith today? I don't use, I I use the name Jesus, absolutely. But I am more drawn to Emmanuel because I recognize God with me. And I want to always be aware of that and present to that. I can't imagine a faith where there isn't a back and forth between you and the thing you have faith in. <laughs> and so, you know, I, I can be given a question and I can spend time on it. But more than that, now, nowadays, I just will notice something. So here's a, for instance, and my friends all know that this is a big thing for me at this point. Years ago, I was in the middle of something, and I don't recall exactly what it was, but I needed to know that God was with me, and a heron flew overhead. And I thought, oh, I'll just take that as my sign, God is with me. I don't think the heron is God. I just recognize it as, um, you know, like an altar uh, that reminds me God is with me. So, Since then, with real regularity and some strange circumstances, I see herons very, very often. And it's just my reminder. I was talking with a woman the other day. She's in a heartbreaking situation, and we're in a Starbucks. And I look over her shoulder out the window, and a heron is flying, like, right in my eyeline, my sight. And I'm like, God, like, you are showing off. How is this possible? And then all I have to do is turn to her and go, you know what? All of this stuff that you're in the middle of, God is not dismayed by it. He's not daunted. He, he's, he doesn't have to turn away from you because of what's going on. He is with you no matter what. And there was my, there was his voice in the form of seeing that bird again and, um, and then passing the message along. I, I think when we have eyes to see and ears to hear, the communication between God and us is actually really loud and really blatant. Two and a half years ago, I had half of my thyroid removed along with something that was growing on it. I went in to get my results, which I totally expected just to be normal. And the specialist surprised me by saying, you know, like this is right on the line here. Um, we used to do radiation on this, but we've decided that's, that's an overkill. So you don't have cancer, but, you know, it's close. And it, it really shook me because I really had not expected that. So the friend of, uh, a friend of mine had gone with me and it was early in the morning and she had said, let's just go for a cup of coffee after this and just kind of settle down a little bit. So we're sitting outside on a patio. This is a July morning. It's a beautiful day. She's gone in to get the drinks and I'm sitting on this patio and suddenly there's a shadow beside me and I look over my shoulder And there's a guy, he's 
leaning against a bike. He's in clothes that would suggest he's homeless, but I, he might have a home. It just, he was dressed kind of like a homeless person might. And he looks at me and he goes, I'm supposed to give this to you. And I look down and he has a white rose tucked into like a black, what I thought was a rag. And I thought, oh, I don't have any money. Like, I was just going to the doctors, you know, and which is a terrible thought. I just assume he had some, some motive. And I had no words. I, I really, I, I don't know that I said a single word to him. And then he laid this rose in the rag on the little fence beside me. And he goes, this is for you. I'm supposed to give it to you. And then he laid it on the table and walked away. And, and then I realized I, this, what I thought was a rag was actually a black bandana that was absolutely clean. I just, I just felt like God was saying, even here, I can use anyone I want to tell you I am with you. I am with you all the time. I am Emmanuel. And that, that's the crux of my relationship with Jesus is, is that, like, there's no longer a clipboard. Actually, a, about a year ago, someone was asking to do a little listening prayer, and we reversed it, and, and it became for me. And I saw Jesus with a clipboard, and he was writing, and I thought, oh, no, that's a really old picture. I don't believe that anymore. And then Jesus came to me, and he turned it around, and it, it was like, the, the caption on the top of the paper was what I love about you. And I just thought, oh, I, I've, I've had it wrong. I had it wrong as a kid, but I know it now. And God with me is my, that's my bedrock, my foundation. And so it allows me to not let circumstances dictate if God is with me or not. It's not like because I'm sick, God doesn't love me. What, what have I done? And I have to do this big moral inventory. It's just like, no, even when I'm sick, here he is, right here. And so dialogue comes out of that. Sometimes I just say, I heard, rather than blaming God for what I hear, <laughs> just to be, just so that people don't get too riled up by it. And I, I don't use it as leverage on people. It really is personal for me to make my relationship with God sincere and personal and intimate. I'm so grateful for that perspective on a relationship with God. I know that from talking to Brad in the past and now from talking to you, you both seem to have this very personal, I know the term personal relationship is so cliche, but it just seems to be direct in a way that so many of us don't experience on a regular basis. But uh, as Brad explained to me one time, it's maybe not because we don't have it. We just don't recognize it. Yeah, I agree. Uh, for me, uh, you have herons. I have wild turkeys. Oh, okay. I remember one time a few years back seeing just in an open clearing uh, several, there was dozens of just wild turkeys out in the field. And there was something inside of me that just began to soar mm -hmm. seeing those. And I had that same kind of moment of God saying, I just wanted you to see those today and smile to know that I'm here and I'm paying attention. 
And years later, when we planted a church on the way to the first service of that church, there was a clearing with wild turkeys. Awesome. And those have just shown up again and again uh, over years now yeah. uh, as just a symbol, just, just a way, just something so simple. And isn't it wonderful of God to take those opportunities to remind us? That God's with us. Of of course, it's amazing. And if we look at when the Israelites were in the desert, something big would happen, and God would say, "Build an altar here," and then name it this, right? And then they'd get to somewhere else, and something would go down, and and he'd say, "Okay, now build an altar and name it this." And it was always somehow pointing to God, right, or a name for God. And you kind of thought, "Oh, I wonder what that was about." But I think what it was, was it's the wild turkeys and the heron. It's like, you know that you're going to come around. They didn't know they were going to be out there for 40 years. But they were going to come around to those places again along the way. And then they were going to recall, oh, yeah, remember when God did this? Remember when he was with us and this happened? And, and I just think we need those kind of things in our lives that validate who God is within our lives. And so sometimes he uses a song or birds or places that draw us to a place where we remember, oh yeah, this is what God is like. This is what he does. It's wonderful. It really is. Well, that unique perspective on God is one of the reasons that I thought to have you kick off our new series on this podcast of the church we dream of. What does the church that you dream of look like? The picture I use these days of what what I imagine a good, healthy church would look like is a big table. My, We just moved my parents from a home into some care. And they had a big table where about 16 of us could sit when we had meals together. And my dad even figured out how to add an extra, like he had, what's it called, the the board in the middle. Uh, And then he, he found another one that was actually for a different table, but he could make it fit just to make it even bigger, right? And I love the imagery of being able to use the table and expand it, all, like always being in the position to expand it, to make room for more people. And I, I want to see a church where there's room for everyone at the table. No one's under the table. No one's on the table. No one's standing or lurking in the side, uh, in the shadows, not waiting to be invited, that everyone knows and understands that this is the place for us. This is where we belong. I know of a a small church in Eltona, Manitoba, and they they have used the imagery of the table so much that a couple of the guys in the church actually built a huge table that they have at the front of their church at all times. And that's where they serve communion from. And uh, the pastor there said, you know, her favorite thing is to watch the kids just go up there like they belong and like they're entitled to this. And I'm like, yes, like, and and she says, and people will just gather around. They won't even leave right away, but there's plenty of sp- space for everyone. And, you know, we're, we're in the middle of, as, as the church broadly, 
of trying to decide like who gets in and who gets out. We've been, we've had, you know, we've had segments of that all along in our history and we just have a more recent one now. And I just want the church to have the kind of table where you can always put another leaf in it to make room for the next person who needs to belong within this community. What do you see as the primary obstacles keeping us from attaining that type of church or becoming that type of church? This is a really simplistic version of what I think of on this, but I think that church needs to get out of the judgment seat and get over to the mercy seat. We have spent way too much time as leaders, as Christians, as church communities, trying to sort out, judge people as to whether they qualify or not. And that that's not our business. We have never been invited to the seat of judgment, but we are invited to the mercy seat. So why don't we all en masse get over to the mercy seat so that we can stop sorting through who's allowed to come or not. That's up to God. And he said, come. Another thing that, that I wish the church would be able to not just say, but demonstrate is another church had a sign, a big sign said, come as you are. If we actually meant that on a Sunday morning, the people were allowed to come messy, messed up, not in alignment with God, maybe not even knowing who God is. If they just felt welcome to come as they are without having to pretend that they were put together, maybe some things would really actually happen on a Sunday morning. There wouldn't be so much plastic in the room and it'd be a lot more live, organic material. And we would be able to engage with God and not be looking at who's there and what we suspect their issues are. As a former pastor of 20 years, I know how impossible, almost impossible, it can seem to help navigate a church in a new direction. In this era of cancel culture, it seems popular to call out and dismiss church leaders that we perceive as not doing enough to change their churches fast enough. What thoughts do you offer to those growing impatient with the slow rate of change, especially in established churches? Well, it's frustrating, <laughs> to say the least. Um, I'm, I now am not a leader. I just go to a church and I'm just one of the I'm just one of the chairs in the room right now, right? And and I really, really appreciate watching how the leaders in my church are trying to navigate this. To answer your question, I wish that people, instead of just reacting with words, would recognize that trying to navigate inclusiveness with a a history of exclusiveness is is not it, it's not just a turnaround thing. You can't just turn around and go, okay, and now we're doing this. Because usually the heart of the leaders and the pastors is to take as many people with them as possible. So in the church that I'm going to, we are not officially, by whatever criteria that's you know is given to that, 
are, we are not officially an inclusive church. But the people who go to this church, their hearts in general are towards being inclusive. I think that that actually is a farther way down the road than just slapping a label on your church door and then having people show up to find out that actually those were just words. The people aren't really engaged at that level. It, it's really hard. And, and I beg for compassion on people who are trying to lead this and trying to do it well. I think for folks who are frustrated or feel stymied in this process, I would encourage them to offer support and help. To say, how can I help promote this instead of just being a naysayer and causing grief further. So much wisdom in those words. Thank you. Many of our friends listening have been wounded in the context of their local churches. What do you say to those who just can't see church as anything they want to be a part of anymore? Well, personally, I'm the kind of person that's wired in a way that needs community. And like I said before, I think Sunday morning needs to be a place an hour or two in a week where you recalibrate yourself to God. I don't think you're going to find that, honestly, anywhere else, even on a podcast, because community is required. I would just, I would beg them to reconsider, to, to actually look around and find where where do I find a church or a community where the message I'm hearing is the message I need to hear? And where, where can I find a community where I can actually be myself and engage in my truest form without having to try to cover up things or, or feel somehow that I need to um, not be myself? I just think being a part of a community of faith where you can be loved and you can love others, where you can bear each other's burdens, where there's a sense of mutuality is so, so important. And when you're not in it, you suffer. And I, I really don't want anyone to suffer because they're not part of a community where they can thrive. And so I would encourage them to find someone to help them with the pain that was caused and to be very specific about what the pain was. Um, sometimes we're just fed up and we call it pain, but that, that isn't actually accurate. And so to really engage in a process of what happened and how has this affected me and how can I be healed and where can I enter into a community where that's not going to happen again or where I can feel quite a bit safer than, than where that happened prior. Wonderful advice. Friends, as I said earlier, we will link to the book that Eden co-authored with her husband, Brad, in the show notes, as well as provide links to some videos and interviews featuring Eden so you can hear more from her on YouTube. Eden, thanks so much for speaking with me today. I'm so grateful for your time and your voice, and we look forward to hearing more from you in the future as you continue to raise your voice in the Kingdom Conversation. Thanks for having me, Jason. You've been listening to the Messy Spirituality Podcast. You can find us on Facebook and visit us online at messyspirituality.org. 
you can help spread the word about the podcast by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes and sharing links to each episode on your social media. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode. Yeah.